Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do pray as we just sang that our hearts would be right with you, that we would not be cast from your presence. Do not allow us to come into your presence in our own righteousness, for we know that it is filthy rags. But we come before you, Father, in the righteousness of Christ. We come in his name, for we know that he has paid the price that we could not pay, that he has covered our sins and took them upon himself, and he has taken upon himself the wrath that we deserved. And that in itself, Father, causes us to rejoice, to know that we have a great Savior, a great salvation that allows us to come into your presence to worship you in truth and spirit. And we come, Father, praying that your Spirit this day would work in our hearts, that He would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truth so that we might rightly apply them to our lives. We thank you, Father, that we can know that if we are in Christ, then that our sins are forgiven. We come asking, Father, that you continue to teach us the truth that we continue to look at in the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you, Father, that our Lord and Savior preached this sermon, not only for those who heard it on that day some 2,000 years ago, but, Father, for us to hear it today. And we pray, Father, that we would not only hear it, but, Father, that it would be real in our lives, that it would make a tremendous impact upon us so that we leave this place different. We know, Father, that you are able by your Spirit to make us more like Christ. And we know that we are called to be his imitators. So we pray, Father, that as we think upon the Sermon on the Mount, that we would rightly apply these truths to our lives so that we would be more like him that we would be able to go into the world and make an impact upon this world, that people might see Christ in us, and that you might use us to proclaim your gospel to those that we come in contact with. Do not leave us in our ignorance, Father, but teach us this day. And we pray for the salvation of sinners, whether it be here in this place, Father, or wherever the gospel is proclaimed today, that many... We come into your kingdom. We pray, Father, that you would also bless those unable to be with us. You know their reasons and their needs. We pray that you minister to those who are sick, that your healing hand would be upon their body and restore their health so that they might join us soon for worship. We pray for those who would be away, that you would give them safety as they travel and wherever they may worship this day, Father, that they may have a blessed time of worship and fellowship with the brethren. We pray, Father, that you would continue to use this church to bring honor and glory to your name. And we pray, Father, for the church universal, that it meets this day, that many would come into your kingdom. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. As we continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount, turn again to Matthew chapter 5 and we'll read verses 43 through the end of the chapter again. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemy, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. As we continue to look at these commands that Jesus gives us in this command specifically to love your enemies, let me remind you that Jesus is not giving us something that is new. Jesus is not adding a new commandment for us, but He is simply giving us the full intent of what God meant in the Old Testament when He gave the greatest commandment of all, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as we saw last week, we are to even love our enemies. So, under love your neighbor is this aspect of loving your enemy. Of course, the religious leaders had perverted the truth of God. And they had taken the law of God and they had taught the people that they had a right to hate their enemies. And Jesus is simply clearing the error up and stating the truth. Now it's sad that there were false teachers in Jesus' day that led the people astray, and it's sad that there are false teachers in our day that lead people astray as well. It's sad that many do not preach the gospel. Instead, they preach self-esteem. Now I don't have to stand here and tell you the name of those. Most of you know who I'm speaking of. A lot of them will tell their people that God loves you and God wants you to pull up your bootstraps and y'all go out there and do good. And they leave them in their sin because they do not teach them the gospel. That in their own strength, they cannot do any good. In their own strength, they cannot love their brother, much less their enemy. That something has to happen to them supernatural in their life so that they have the power to be able to not only love their neighbor, but love their enemy. Of course, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had defined neighbor as who? As their fellow man. And of course, he goes on and tells us, is that not easy to love those who love you, to love your fellow man? So the mandate to love your neighbor was even reduced further to simply the Jews. And therefore, they thought that it was okay for them to hate the Gentiles. And, of course, they called the Gentiles those dogs. Now, when they talked about those dogs, they're not talking about the dogs that we have today. Uh, I wouldn't... Well, I better not say that. I wouldn't put some people down to my dog's level. I mean, or raise them up to my dog's level. Uh, But anyway, that's what they viewed. They viewed the dogs as the worst animal there could be, and therefore they called the Gentiles dogs. Not only did they despise the Gentiles, but they despised the foreigners as well. And they said that you can hate those people, rightly so. 
Because in their mind, not only were they to hate them, but in their mind they thought that God hated them as well. And therefore they thought they could justify their self by teaching the people. Now again, these false teachers were leading people astray. And there are those who lead people astray today because they do not teach the character of God. They do not teach the attributes of God. I mean, if you begin to talk about God's wrath and only mention God's love, as so many do today, and overlook the judgment on sin, then you're perverting Scripture. I mean, people must hear the bad news before people hear the good news. And a lot of people want to go straight to the good news. All they want to do is talk about God's love. They don't want to ever talk about judgment. They don't want to talk about sin. Matter of fact, when we were singing a while ago, I was using the Baptist hymnal, and uh, it helps me sometimes because of my uh, eyesight to look at the words on the page instead of looking at the screen. And I noticed when we were singing that uh, it was a different verse that I was singing than what was on the um, screen up here. And I wondered to myself, now why did they leave that verse out of the Baptist hymnal? Because it was talking about how vile we are, how naked we come before God. Now, I hope they didn't leave it at on purpose because they didn't want to hear about our vileness and our nakedness. But yet there are those that would leave that out because of the very thing. In other words, you don't need to tell a person that they're vile. You don't need to tell a person that they're naked before God and that God doesn't accept their righteousness. But yet, Scripture clearly teaches that. Unless a man hears the bad news, how can he be ready to hear the good news? So we see that Jesus is clarifying a lot of this. Jesus clarifies the great commandment, which entails that we must love others, even our enemies, because God's image is stepped on every single human being. And it's God's image, even though that image is marred, and in some people's it's marred more than others, there is something in them that we are to love, and that is God's image. R.C. Sproul says, The image of God carries with it the mandate to live in such a way as to mirror and reflect the character of God. And that's good for us to remember. So this strange, difficult mandate reveals how God relates to man and as a result, how we are to relate to God as well as how we are to relate to our fellow man, even to our enemy. Now Jesus teaches that we are to show love. We talked last week about this love that he's talking about. This agape love, unconditional love. We're not loving because they do something for us. We're loving them because of God's love for us. It's an unconditional love that we have for our neighbor and our enemy. And as a result of having that unconditional love, we are able to do what? Well, he tells us here. We're able to do good to them and to pray for them. Even though they might, what does he say there? Despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know about myself. It's hard to do good to people that persecute you. It's hard to do good to people that despise you and spitefully use you, right? But yet, we're commanded to do that. And Christ is emphasizing that because we are new creations, because we've been changed by the gospel, we have the power to do exactly that. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. We can have complacency in one 
that is openly, cannot have complacency in one that is openly wicked and profane, nor put a trust in that one. We know to be deceitful. Nor are we to love all alike. So he's clarifying that we talked about last week that we're not to love all alike. But we must pay respect to the human nature and so far honor all men. We must take notice with pleasure of that even in our enemies there is something admirable and commendable. Ingeniousness, good temper, learning and moral virtue kindness to others, profession of religion, etc. Love that. Though they are your enemies, we must have compassion and a good will toward them. So he's pointing out, because they are image bearers of God, we are to love them. Now when we speak to them, we're to be kind, we're to be courteous. Why? Longing to win them. Longing to win them to Christ and speaking the truth to them in love so that we might win them to Christ. Doing good to them, showing compassion upon them. That in some way or another that God might use you to have an influence upon them to where they do come to Christ. So you see that we must show good. In other words, if you're going down the road and you see an enemy... Broke down on the side of the road, flat tire possibly, stop and help him. Or if you see someone needing medical attention, that is your enemy, stop and help them. We are to be what? Like the Good Samaritan is what Jesus is pointing out. But most importantly, we should love their soul and care for their soul, wanting them to be Christians. Now we are to pray for them. Those who despitefully use us. In other words, what we need to understand is that prayer will often change our attitude about them. I read a story by R.C. Sproul. He talked about a pastor who had a weekly businessman luncheon there in Pennsylvania. And he said, one day this particular pastor said, "If if you don't like someone or you're having trouble getting along with them, a co-worker, boss, whoever it is that you are against, pick your strongest enemy. And I challenge you to pray for them every single day for 30 days. Well, afterwards, this uh, ex-Marine sergeant came up to the pastor and said, there's no way... I am going to pray for my enemy. You're telling me to pray for someone that I hate? It's never going to happen. Well, the pastor replied to him, Sir, you may be right, but I want to ask you to take this challenge. Pray for your enemy for 30 days, and then you come back here and you tell me next month what's happened. Well... The ex-Marine sergeant did come back. And he came back every month. And eventually he was converted. And eventually he entered into the ministry. And then he even took over teaching this very meeting to the businessmen. He learned 
what it meant to pray for those who despise you. God changed his heart. How? By praying through prayer. 30 days he prayed for his worst enemy. And as a result, God converted him. It's nothing new for us as Christians to be hated, to be cursed, to be persecuted, to be despised and used. And Jesus himself was so treated. But he prayed for his enemies. Even as he hung on the cross, he prayed for his enemies. And likewise, Jesus has told us to be conformed to his image, to be conformed to his example, to his precepts. You may know someone, maybe even in this congregation, that you need to pray for. You may need to pray for 30 days and see what happens. Now, I mean, really praying for them. I'm not, I'm not saying, uh, Father, I, I, I pray that they may have a good day. I pray that you may change so and so. No, I'm talking about really praying for them as Scripture teaches us. I encourage you to pray that God will work in your life as well as in their life. Ask God to give you the right attitude toward them to help you love them as a brother or sister in Christ and see what happens. We saw a few weeks ago that we are to resolve any issue with a fellow Christian. All the way back there in um, verse 23 and 24 of the right chapter. I'm in the wrong chapter. When he says there, Therefore, if you bring your altar and there remember that your brother has alt against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So the question is, I don't remember how many Sundays ago that was. Have you been obedient to God? Have you done what the scripture teaches you? If there is something that you have against a brother or a sister, if there is some kind of problem, this is what the word of God tells us to do. But if we are also to show love to our enemies by doing good, Jesus says that doing this is like what? It's like heaping coals of fire on their head. This past week, my wife and I were told to watch the movie Greater. I don't know how many of you have seen that movie. It's an interesting movie about Brian Burlesworth, who was a a football player who wanted to play football really bad at Arkansas, and he walked on, and uh, he worked very hard to be able to make the team, and, and eventually he made the team and even got a scholarship. But he was a strong Christian, and as a result of being a strong Christian, he was despitefully used and persecuted by a number of the players, even his roommates. And he only showed love back to his teammates. Now, he was big enough to hurt some of them. I, I guarantee it, he could have done that, but he didn't hurt them. He, he restrained himself and showed love to them. And eventually, he led some of them to Christ. Why? Because he did not return evil for evil, but he returned love when they showed him 
evil. And that's what we are called to do in our daily life. And Jesus is continuing to teach what He started all the way back in verse 38, which was, choose mercy, not vengeance. Now, as I mentioned last week, we as Christians have a higher calling. This is our calling to love our fellow man and to love our enemies. Now, here in verses 46 and 47, he points out that loving those who love you is very easy, right? I mean, what good is it if you love those who love you is what he's pointing out. I mean, even, he says, the tax collector. And then why does he use the word tax collector? Well, they were the low man on the totem pole. They, they were the worst of the worst. He said, even the worst of the worst do that. So in other words, what he's saying, you're no better than them if you simply love those who love you. What good is that? But a Christian is to be like his heavenly father, he's pointing out who shows benevolent love to all mankind. So therefore, he says that it rains and the sun shines on all mankind and that God is kind to those, even though they may be unthankful and evil. And most lost people are. I mean, most lost people are not in the church today giving God thanks for the sunshine and the rain And the crops and the food that God gives them and everything comes from God's hand. And so therefore they continue to live a wicked life. But God continues to be merciful. Now next I want to address the exception that I mentioned last week. I know some of you may be eager eager to hear that. I mean, are there times when you arrive at a point when you no longer pray positively for your enemies and no longer do them good. Now, I must admit this is a controversial subject, um, especially us reformers or in the minority when it comes to this, uh, especially in our day because of the mindset that many have about God today. As I I mentioned earlier, most people completely ignore Scripture when it talks about the wrath of God or or the vengeance of God. Most don't believe that God is wrathful. That's an Old Testament concept, a lot of people say. Most people don't believe that God is vengeful, but that God is simply all love and loves everybody in the same manner. That's your typical person. That's what they believe. But Scripture clearly teaches that God is an avenging God and that God promises to deal with the unjust things that take place, that He will execute vengeance. Now here's a New Testament passage, of course quoted from the Old Testament. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, but vengeance is not yours. So that's God saying, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. So when it comes to a public matter, there is still a legitimate place for the role of the state, for the role of the church, and what the New Testament teaches about justice. In these verses, Jesus is speaking about Christian personal ethics. 
In other words, if something is done to you directly by another person, that's what he's dealing with. If somebody offends me, or if somebody is my personal enemy, he's saying I am to love them. But I must be known as a person of grace. That I must be known of a person of mercy. Why? Because I have been a recipient of grace and mercy. Now, this must mark all Christian behavior. Since God has shown mercy to us, since God has shown grace and kindness, since God has adopted us into His family, we are to likewise show mercy, grace, and kindness to others, our neighbors and our enemies. But let us move from this personal ethics to the larger picture. What is the larger picture? Well, God rules over all nations. And Scripture teaches us that God judges the wicked who have hardened their heart and are hardening their heart against God and His truth. Do you realize that every time you and I pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that we are praying and an impeccatory prayer. We're praying an impeccatory prayer on God's enemies. Why? Why do I say that? Well, when Jesus comes, what is Jesus going to do? Jesus is going to bring judgment on God's enemies, is He not? So do you see what I'm saying? Every time we pray that prayer, we're saying, God, come quickly. Jesus, come quickly. Bring about justice. Take care of those who have stood against you and rebelled against you. Now, as difficult as it might be to swallow that, it's clearly taught in Scripture, especially in those impeccatory psalms. They are a type of lament, a corporate cry of God's people to God to bring about righteousness. And the impeccatory Psalms in particular is a vocalization of Israel's tear in the face of injustice and suffering. And we know that Israel faced that numerous times as they were taken into captivity time and time again. And they would cry out to God to deliver them. So therefore, by praying down the curse of God on their enemies and asking God to uphold His law, to bring about righteousness, to bring about justice. So at the root of these psalms is the invocation of what we call divine curse. We saw it in the psalms that we read this morning, Psalm 6. It's also in Psalms 5, 35, 69, and 109. Each of those are in some way or another, repeated in the New Testament. So we see that they're not only Old Testament quotes, but they are New Testament quotes. So curse pronunciations are scattered not only out throughout the Old Testament, but also throughout the New Testament. And we have to understand that even Jesus called down woes of judgment upon the religious leaders. Woe is you, he said, 
to the Pharisees there in Matthew 23. And he continues, woe is you for this, woe is you for that, and on and on and on. We're not going to read Matthew 23. You can do it later if you so desire. Even Paul's pronunciation or pronouncement on anathema. Who was that pronounced upon? Anyone who would preach another gospel, let it be anathema to him. There in Galatians 1, 89. And we see the same thing there in Revelation 6, 10, when the martyrs in heaven petition God. What are they petitioning God to do? God, avenge our blood. Avenge us. Those who have put us to death, avenge us by bringing judgment upon them. So Scripture affirms the validity of God's people making these particular prayers. Now, the underlying principle is that our prayers must be rooted in Scripture. Those who attend prayer meeting, I hope that you have learned, as we have gone throughout the entire Bible, looking at the prayers in the Bible. Now, we didn't deal with every single prayer specifically, but we did look and see where every single prayer was throughout the entire Bible. It took us, I think, about three years to do that. But we saw how... People prayed. And hopefully we learn from those prayers. It's good to even repeat prayers that are found in the Scripture. If you want to know how to pray, go to the Bible to learn to pray. Jesus taught His disciples how to pray. Remember, they asked a question, teach us to pray. That's what we seek to do on Wednesday night as we do our study on prayer. Now, uh, we're going through Valley of Vision and reading Puritan prayers. I mean, the Puritans, they knew how to pray. Boy, we need to learn to pray like the Puritans prayed. That's why we're going through these prayers on Wednesday night as well. Now, the Psalter, we know, is God's divinely inspired prayer book and hymnal and teaches us to petition and praise God, rightly so. And these uh, imprecatory psalms help us to shape our prayers when we are outraged over what sin has done, all we have to do is look around and hopefully you're outraged when you see what sin has done to this world. When you see what has happened in this short time in our nation. I've said many times, I would have never imagined Forty-five years ago, things would take place like they have. I'd have never thought they would have happened. I am astounded, astounded that we can no longer say who a woman is and who a man is. Or we can, but our society tells us that we can't. Even our newest Supreme Court justice said that she could not describe who a woman was. I mean, how perverted have we gotten as a nation? Why did that come about? It's come about because of sin, see? And that should anger us as Christians. We should have a righteous indignation toward sin that is destroying both this nation as well as the church. Understanding that sin deserves, and we pray that God would bring that about that He would help us to understand and help us to see the righteousness of these prayers that we are able to pray. 
Now, yes, Jesus says, love your enemies. But loving our enemies in the New Testament never comes at the expense of ignoring the appeal for divine justice. For God to show His holiness and to bring about righteousness in our day. And praying for God to punish the wicked is neither unloving nor vindicated. But it is an expression of our faith in God who righteously will judge the wicked. Remember what Peter says there in 1 Peter 2, uh, 23. He's speaking about Jesus himself. And he says, first of all, in verse 22, "...who committed no sin, nor was guile found in him, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return." But what did he do? "...when he suffered, he did not threaten..." but committed himself to him who judges rightly. In other words, what is he saying there? He simply committed himself to God the Father who will bring judgment upon those who have done this. And likewise, it's okay for us to pray that in our day and time. Those that do us as Christians harm. And we must see that praying this impeccatory psalm is ultimately to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Remember in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we call it, we long for what? God's kingdom to come, right? I hope that's what you long for. As as Christians, that's what we should long for. We long for sin to be done away with and righteousness to come. We long for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what does that mean? Does it not mean for sin to be gone and wickedness to be removed? So praying the impeccatory Psalms is not a call to arms, but it's a call to faith. We lift up our voice, not our sword. We pray for God either to convert or to curse the wicked of Christ and His kingdom. So we pray, God, restore your kingdom. For God to convert the lost or to curse the lost. One or the other, Lord. We want your kingdom to come. And must add that we must be careful. We must be wise. We must be very conscious of who we pray against. We pray against those who are Christ's enemies, God's enemies, those who are trying to destroy the truth, trying to destroy the gospel. I mean, Paul talks about how loving your enemy will further increase their punishment. So setting love on our enemy radically turns them over to even God's judgment. So we know that that's also something that we pray for. So we have to be careful and very sensitive. But it is legitimate to pray in that manner. If we believe in the full authority, truthfulness, trustworthiness of Scripture, then God is sovereign. Not only inspiring the Psalms, which express this, but also 
He inspires us by His Spirit to express it in prayer. So when we pray, as I mentioned a minute ago, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It includes everything uttered even in the Psalms, in these particular Psalms especially, and everywhere else in Scripture that speaks about judgment which is going to come. And there are times that our hearts cry out for justice as we go through this world. We want justice done, right? I mean, even as things have transpired this past week, some people said, there is no justice in our government today. And it upsets us, right? And it ought to upset us. We want justice in our country. I mean, it upsets us when we see, of course, we're glad that now the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade, but it upsets us when that law was able to last for so many years to where the unborn were murdered. I mean, that upset us. And we cried out, God brings an end to this. And of course, we know that it's not ended. We continue to pray out that God would end abortion in our land. But at least we're thankful that it can end in Mississippi and end in other states that believe that the unborn child is God's created loved one that He has created. So therefore, we cry out for justice. We continue to cry out that God would give us judges that rule over us that would be just judges and make just laws, not wicked laws that we see made in our day and time. Those that seek to destroy marriage. I mean, it grieves our heart. And we must cry out, God, remove those that continue to say that a man can marry a man. Remove them. Remove them from the Supreme Court. Give us people that will uphold biblical truth. That marriage is between a man and a woman. And many other laws that pertain to that. We continue to cry out to God. To change things. To bring about justice in our day. Listen to what David prayed. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. That was the prayer of David. Now notice in that prayer that he says, with a perfect hatred. And likewise, we need to pray to God to give us that perfect hatred. Help us, Lord, to hate that which you hate with a perfect hatred. And count those that are your enemies, our enemies. Now, I remind you that we must distinguish between private and public enemies. Jesus is speaking about our personal enemies. The Psalms are speaking about our public enemies. Those who stand against God. Those who stand against His law. His people. Those people who or in great wickedness. These individuals will be dealt with by God. His wrath will burn against them. Psalms 7:11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. Is God's wrath not demonstrated every day? I mean, His judgment is on unbelievers who do not profess Christ who go their own way every day. But do you see that you and I likewise, in our lost condition, deserve the same wrath? 
We once were just like them, vile and wicked and sinful. I mean, Jonathan Edwards stressed this so much in his sermons. We know of the sermon that he preached, Sinners in the Hands of Anger God, but that was not the only sermon where he stressed God's wrath. Uh, there's a number of sermons where he stressed it. In most of his greatest sermons, he spoke about God's wrath. And the clearest manifestation of God's wrath is where? The clearest manifestation of God's wrath is at Calvary. I mean, the Father loves the Son. Yet when the sins of His people were imputed to Christ, the Father's love for the Son and for His people is seen. How, how is it seen? Well, it's displayed in the pouring out of God's wrath upon His Son that He loved. He became sin for us. And those whom the Father had given the Son that they might be saved, He took their punishment. And it's because the Father loves His holiness, His glory, that He poured out His wrath on His Son instead of on us. And we see that the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ was not opposite from His love. It displays His love. The cross is what displays God's love the most glorious way. Instead, the cross is where God's justice and holiness and wrath meet. His beloved Son shines forth His brilliant attributes there as He's on the cross. Now many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day fit into this particular category that we talk about. I mean, they were damning the souls of many of the Jews because they were abusing Scripture. I mean, these were the very people that were supposed to be the guardians of Scripture. But instead, they were perverting the Scripture and leading people astray. They were leading them down the road of destruction. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus when Nicodemus came to him and he explained to Nicodemus that he must be born again, that he must be born from above. And Nicodemus had no understanding. Uh, is there any way that I can go back into my mother's womb and be born again? He was completely confused. And what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Nicodemus... You are the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? You're ignorant of the most basic truth of what salvation is about. You're ignorant of grace that is in the Old Testament. You're ignorant of what Ezekiel says, that I will put a new heart in you. I will put a new spirit in you. I will wash you clean. You're ignorant of those things and you're a teacher of the law? Listen to what A.W. Pink says, An infallible mark of a false teacher is that he deliberately adapts his message to his perverted inclinations of his own benefit and praise. Let me repeat that. The infallible mark 
of a false teacher is that he deliberately adapts his message to his perverted inclination of his own benefit and praise. So therefore, if you're listening to people on TV or the radio, if you want to see whether they're a false teacher or a true teacher, measure them by that particular definition. What is their inclination? Is their inclination for their own benefit and their own praise? Or is it for the glory of God? See, this is how they were able, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, this is how they were able to come up with that statement, hate your enemies. I mean, that benefited them. That brought praise to them. And such a person is a spiritual enemy of man's soul. And we must pray that God would remove such a person so that, we, that He doesn't continue to lead people to an everlasting hell. I mean, if somebody comes up to you and asks you about certain teachers and you know without a shadow of a doubt in your mind that they are false teachers, tell them. Don't say, well, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, you may need to listen to this person instead of, no, you tell them. Look, that person will lead you astray. That person will damn your soul. Don't listen to them. They are false teachers. Don't allow them into your house. Remember, uh, in 2 John, verse 10 refers to those who are open enemies of God. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, what doctrine? The doctrine John has taught. Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. See, those people, you have the right. You don't have to be courteous to those people. You don't have to be kind to those people. Don't let them in your house. Why? Because they're false teachers and leading you astray. Well, that was the part that I wanted to mention that I didn't mention last week. Let me close with this. Look at what Jesus says in his last point in this particular series on his sermon there in verse 48. He says, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Wow. I mean, is this not an impossible standard? Standard. But wasn't this God's standard from the very beginning? I mean, what was his standard for Adam and Eve? Obey. Here's my rules. Live here in the garden. Obey me. But one thing you cannot do, don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. That was his standard. Be perfect, in other words. That's what he was telling them. Be perfect like me. Has God ever changed that standard? Has He given us a new standard that He requires a man before He will accept them? Nope. Now, of course, no man is able to meet this righteous standard, right? I mean, none of us can meet this righteous standard to be perfect. Why? We have a heart problem. And we know that heart problem began where? At the fall. Adam and Eve fell and we all fell in them. We all are sinners. We all are totally depraved. But this is no excuse. This only condemns us. After, listen to this statement. After the fall, love from divine law was supplanted by hatred and submission. 
And obedience gave place to enmity and opposition. So because man is depraved, now instead of obeying, now instead of submitting, what? We are at enmity with God and opposed to God. Every person is thoroughly guilty. No exception. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's one time you can say all means all. There are times that all don't mean all. We're not going to go there right now and talk about that. But this here means all. Every single human being is without excuse. And therefore, since he is inexcusable for not being perfect, not being perfectly obedient to God, he deserves damnation. So if being perfect, as the Father in heaven is perfect, is entirely beyond our ability, contrary to Him, then His need to be born again, man's need to be born again, is self-evidence. I mean, it's self-evidence. He must look beyond Himself. He must look to Christ and Christ alone. He can't save Himself, so He must look to the one that can save Him. For Christians, this is a general understanding of this particular verse as well as a particular understanding. I mean, in general, it includes all biblical truth that we must do to reveal to us that we are followers of Christ. We must seek to imitate Christ as the Scripture teaches us in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Imitate Him in all things. The Holy Spirit provides us that supernatural power to follow Christ, to be imitators of Christ. That's our duty. And that should be our desire. If you don't have that desire, then you better examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because a Christian has that desire to imitate Christ. Paul says what in uh, Philippians 3, 12-14? Not that I've attained, already attained, or am already perfect, But I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as apprehending, but one thing I do, forgetting that which is behind me and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward calling of Jesus Christ. Also, we're exhorted in Scripture to be conformed to the image of Christ, the likeness of Christ, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And Peter said, But as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy as I am holy. So these are general truths for every Christian to grasp and display in his life. But there's a particular aspect of this. Doing good to our enemies. A parallel passage to this when Jesus gives practically the same sermon, is in Luke chapter 6, verse 36. He says, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. So Jesus is talking about, as Paul talks about, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Working out that which God has done in us. That if we are born again, then we're able to do this. We are able to live an obedient life. We are able to seek to be perfect. Now, will we ever be perfect here on this side of heaven? No, we won't ever be perfect. But yet our desire is to be perfect in God, in Christ. 
to live for Him. Because of the grace that He has shown us, we therefore will be gracious to others. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. It is God's perfection to forgive injuries and to entertain strangers and to do good to the evil and thankful. And it will be ours to be like Him. Calvin says, Christ assures us that this will be a mark of our adoption. In other words, it assures us that we have been brought into the family of God. If we are kind to who? The unfaithful and the evil. So if we're we're kind to those who are unfaithful and evil, it shows that we have a mark of adopted into the family of God. We who owe so much to God the Father because of His grace and mercy and divine love must seek to imitate Christ. May God give us the strength to imitate Him daily so that we might point others to Christ. Our desire is to see the lost converted. And we must point them to Christ. And Paul stresses this in Romans 12, 20, that we must do unto those who hate us and persecute us. Namely, return good for evil and love for hatred. Now that's difficult. Again, I stress, only by the supernatural power of Christ, the Spirit living in us, are we able to do that. To do good for evil and love for hatred. Not being overcome with evil, we are to overcome evil with good. Let me close with these last couple of statements. First by A.W. Pink. He says, spare no efforts in bringing your congregation, so he's speaking to me as a pastor, to understand what is signified in loving God with all your heart and all that it involves in loving your neighbor as yourself. How otherwise shall they be brought to know their guilt? You see what he's saying? In other words, unless I speak the truth to you, you're not going to be brought to see your guilt. Unless they are made to feel how totally contrary to God is their depraved nature. How shall they discover their imperative need to be born again? True, such preaching will not increase your popularity. Rather, it will invoke opposition. But remember that the Savior Himself was hounded to death, not for proclaiming the gospel, but for enforcing the law. Even though you be persecuted, your will be the satisfaction of knowing your shirt are clear from the blood of your hearers. If you are unregenerate, lost, a rebel against the Most High God, trampling His commandments under your feet, for this reason you 
need to be born again. You need to experience the mercy and grace of God. You need God to create a new heart in you so that you will love God and you will love your neighbor. Otherwise, you will not be able to do so. You need to be reconciled to God. Why? Because you are under the wrath of God. About 37 years ago, i never forget John Gershner. John Gershner taught R.C. Sproul. He was preaching at the church that I was at. And he preached on heaven in the morning service. No, heaven in the night service. Hell in the morning service. And he said these words. If you are an unbeliever, God hates you with a perfect hatred. If you die, that hatred will be upon you for all eternity. How true those words are. If you are an unbeliever, God hates you with a perfect hatred hatred. And if you die, that hatred will be upon you for all eternity. Those are fearful words. I remember a friend of mine told me he stated words such as that at the church he was at. It shook that church up. And I pray that it would shake this church up. That if you are an unbeliever, that you would realize that right now at this very moment, God hates you with a perfect hatred. And if you died, that hatred will be upon you for eternity. Why do I share that? Because that is the truth. That's the bad news. But there is a good news. And that good news is that if you will come to Christ... That if you will look upon Him and that you will repent of your sins and you will trust in Him and in Him alone, that He will save you and you will be brought into His family. Adopted as a son. And His love will be expressed to you in a way that is uncomprehensible in this world. Come Christ today. Let us pray. Father, I pray that your Spirit may take these words and cause all of us to understand how holy, holy, holy you are, and how you hate sin, and how you will not allow sin into your presence, nor any sinner unforgiven. We thank you, Father, that in your scripture you have revealed to us how gracious and merciful and kind you are. And Father, that we might see that Christ opens His arms and welcomes sinners who come to Him. How we pray, Father, that this day may be the day of salvation. How we pray that this day would be the day of 
recommitment, renewal in our lives as Christians, Father. That we would be more determined than ever before to love our neighbor and to even love our enemy. We know that you give us that ability to do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. So may we leave this place, Father, this day, knowing these truths, but living them out as well. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for His sake. Amen.